Welcome to Assuming Command with Bob Horton, brought to you by Upstream ABI, a podcast where we interview thought leaders, innovators, and influencers in all areas of public service. And now, here's Bob. Welcome, Assuming Command listeners. We got a great one for you today. We have with us David Blankenship, the Senior Technology Advisor for Western Fire Chiefs Association. David works on technology and strategy for public safety. This includes analytical collaborations, creating new technology, and helping government programs and emerging companies with future technology. David is also the co- has also co-founded Intera, a premier situational awareness and analytics platform in the fire service. He was hatched in public safety by the Colorado Springs Fire Department as a senior GIS analyst, a self-proclaimed computer nerd that was ruggedized for fire by the Colorado Springs Fire Department. While there, he applied tactical GIS and analysis for major incidents, operations, business, and risk analysis, deploying to incidents of all kinds, both in Colorado and nationally. David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Chief. It's uh, nice to get to visit with you. And I don't know, influencers, that sounds uh, intimidating, but uh, uh, at least I get to hang out with you. Hey, this is going to be a lot of fun. Every time we get a chance to get together, I think we could just riff for hours on really fun topics about about technology and the fire service and how we can improve uh, the situation that we're in today. So I, I always enjoy our conversations, and I'm grateful to have you here on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So you started off your your career in the fire service in Colorado Springs, and then it it sort of took off from there. And if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners, talk, take us through a little bit about uh, about that and how you sort of developed a passion for where you're at today. Well, uh, you're a product of where you come from in so many ways. And for me, I was a computer nerd already. I worked on a lot of GIS, geospatial kinds of things uh, for the utilities in Colorado Springs. And I was like uh, in heaven doing it. I loved it. And then uh, that uh, group held most of the data in town. And so it became sort of a magnet for other people working on other things. And that's how I met the fire department in Colorado Springs. They came and were really interested in doing um, um, new uh, parcel-based risk risk assessment for wildfire. They have a big wildland urban interface, and at that in Colorado, it just doesn't burn that much. Uh, it didn't then. Uh, and now we look back and say, "Wow, they were a little bit ahead of their time thinking that through." Uh, we had, and so I was the beneficiary of a chief that had come uh, from California, uh, Manuel Navarro. And he was very tech savvy. He had lived through uh, the Tunnel Fire, Oakland Hills Fire, formative uh, uh, wooey interface kinds of things. And, uh, and so he was pushing the marriage of technology and operations. And so doing that uh, really uh, spread into a great organization, a terrific department in Colorado Springs. Long story, but I ended up working for them for, I guess I worked for the city, like probably 16 or 17 years. So it was terrific. But if I had just boiled it all down to it, what they did was, include me in everything. So they didn't treat me like a a computer nerd and put me in a corner working on reports or analytical things. They uh, constantly trained me and their philosophy really was, if you are not one of us, how could we expect you to solve our issues? And so I was fortunate, more fortunate than I even knew at the time that um, wildland training, hazmat training. They sent me to the Defense Nuclear Weapons School for a month, just on and on and on, and then included me in deployments, you know, tactical things in town, search and rescue, wildland fire, hazmat, plume modeling, you know, see Bernie kinds of issues. And that just gave me, you know, you look back in your career, and those are the moments where you just have a million shots on goal and you're just refining your craft and you're around people that have wealth of knowledge, decades and decades of operational experience. And they were in a culture in Colorado Springs where they, they just share that. They were not uh, withholding that. There wasn't a gulf between civilians and, and sworn people. And so they just uh, put me through all phases of their training and their operation and then included me on um, on call 
you know, basically for, you know, the, the years and years and years, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which I loved, couldn't get enough of it. And so that, that was um, my first lesson in going to a chief and sort of being, you know, reporting on all the things I was doing. And he would sit me down and say, I love it. I, I'm glad to know this stuff, but really we hired you because you're supposed to be good at this. And so go do it. And if you need budget or you need political cover, you're in trouble. You, you know, you make a big mistake, come, you know, we'll help you. That's what I'm for. But if you're expecting me to manage your work, then forget about it. You right. know, just go do, make it better. And so I felt like a lot of freedom and trust in that. And, uh, and that was uh, really eye opening for me. It was, it, it opened the door to the, my career, to innovating, to thinking outside the box, and to just having a bottom line mentality that was really informed by knowing operational and policy and staff kind of concerns and saying, what can we bring data to bear and solve this? Who do we need to get? How, how can we collaborate to do that? So long answer, but I just uh, was so lucky to be born in, in that kind of Petri dish where they, I was included and, and they took that for granted. Yeah, and, and you said that was about 16, 17 years mm-hmm. prior to, I mean, where yeah, we're now. I yeah, mean, it's so well before where. city was almost two decades of yeah. just constant uh, ref- refinement of, of technology and, and integration with operations. Well, and, the, and that administration was certainly before, you know, the kind of data revolution that I feel like we're going through now, you know, a couple decades ago to have the foresight to start to integrate technology into operations was is awesome. Uh, you mentioned that maybe he'd offer you some political cover if you got yourself in trouble. Did, did you find yourself in trouble at all? Once in a while, you know, <laughs> you when you're innovating, you run afoul of the bureaucracy, you know. Yeah. And so uh, w- typical for me, you know, I would get tired of hearing um, – uh, my IT brothers and sisters sort of argue about uh, data sharing agreements and everything for years and years, which always sounded really good, but never accomplished a ton. And so I could be a little bit more of a bull in a China shop working in the fire department and saying, well, do you really want to be the one that said they wouldn't share when it turns out that that was the data that we needed. Right. And so they didn't like that, did not react well to that, that kind of uh, not unveiled threat. And, uh, and so I would uh, constantly retreat back to the fire department and say, look, this is what I told them. And they'd be like, yes, we do want the data. We will help you. So right. <laughs> it, was, it was not horrible things, but it was definitely uh, permission to disrupt. Right. One of the takeaways that I want our the practitioners certainly who are listening to our podcast to get from that is it's really important to bring your collaborators collaborators into the decision and decision room and you know into your war room if you will because what we tend we have a tendency to do as as executive administrators is we tell you what we think we want you know and and then you're sitting there saying I, I'm pretty sure that's not what you want you know what what problem are you trying to solve so instead of telling me how to do it. Uh, include me in understanding what problem you're trying to solve and then let me use my expertise. And it sounds like that was the environment you, you found yourself in. Yeah, we ended up uh, giving it a name. We called it the rule of two and, uh, and we didn't mean two literally, but the idea was if you had um, somebody that was in leadership that like you say, has objectives is, is performing to a strategic plan is needing to drive the organization forward. And you have uh, collaborators, in my case, you know, uh, technical people that may be able to provide some insight into how to do that. How are we performing now? Where's the risk? Where's the problem? Those kinds of things. You run into that all the time. And so the rule of two is a reminder to us that it took both and you had to have an open dialogue. And for me and for them, it was always an exercise in swallowing your pride on the technical side. Don't be a know-it-all. That was a lesson for me is like, just because I have data and it can look definitive doesn't mean I understand the nuance of what this policy implication is. And on the leadership side, you know, uh, not to be so shallow in your ego that you're, you're, it's all stars and bars to you and somebody needs to sort of blindly right. follow you, but to, to be coachable and listen. And if somebody's bringing input to say, wait, that isn't how I've ever thought of this, how, you know, and walk me through that, like, I need more information. And so both of us um, trying to humble ourselves and listen to the other one ends up being a really magical uh, 
component. And But on a practical sort of downside of that, it is possible in a department to want to do that and to try to find, you know, a collaborative staff that will help you with that. But pretty soon you're going to have to be honest with yourself and say, like, they're not good enough to do this or I'm a chief and I'm not really willing to listen. And so you have to be, it, it, it will expose your character flaws, right. you know? And so to be, to be honest with enough, uh, with enough with each other to sort of solve through that is, is uh, worth the effort, but it can, can be effort. And it's like so many things, it's like, you think you're talking about a technology issue mm-hmm. or an analytical issue, but you never are. You're always talking about a people issue. Absolutely. So you, so you, gained all this great experience and, and knowledge and we're, we're grateful that you then chose to de- decide to share it with the rest of us, you know, take, go to the next level and be able to uh, move past just being able to help the city of Colorado Springs. Uh, but you took on some larger projects, co-founding in Terra and then now, uh, you know, being a senior technology advisor for the regional fire chiefs association. Talk to us a little bit about that, that transition for you. Yeah, it's the same mission that they taught me and instilled in me is make it better. And then uh, you realize uh, there's different ways to do that. I always thought that I wanted to sort of do that in local government. And I love Colorado Springs Fire with all my heart. And I never, I intended to be there for 30 years or as long as they would have me. So I, I've ne- I never wavered or, and didn't leave because I was dissatisfied with that. Uh, even with different chiefs, you know, you'd have different administrations that were more or less interested in technology, but that wasn't even anything that ever bothered me as long as you were making a difference. What was interesting was um, it was just an opportunity that came up that just uh, you always have sort of a bucket list of people that you that you admire or you'd love to work with, sort of all-stars. And so my heroes, in my mind, you know, were a couple of people that I had deployed with over the years. And we had this idea that we could do more for federating data and creating better situational awareness. So uh, the opportunity came up and we uh, thought about starting it. So I went immediately to my chief and asked him, told him what I was thinking about. And he laughed and he said, you don't need my permission to do that. He said, you you need to make things better. You need to try it. And more than that, every, every person on this job, every firefighter seems to have like a second job, they're realtors or they're concrete, you know, people or framers or whatever they are. So don't do it on our time and don't do it with our stuff, but outside of that. And then the business like took off. So it was sort of, it's a longer story, but, and it's fun, but it's a beer story. But the business uh, established itself and took off. And then I had a problem because I had two full-time jobs. Uh-huh. So I went back to the chief and I said, what do I do? And he said, I don't know, like, don't be silly. Like you either need to hire somebody to do what you're doing over there, or you need to go do that and let us find somebody here. And uh, I said, well, this is my home. You're my family. This is this is what I do. And he said, well, don't be so fast on that. He said, uh, and it was a different chief. He said, uh, go have an adventure, you know, and if it tubes, come back home, you know, and right. bring what you learned. And uh, so you'll always have a, a place here. And I always appreciated that, you know, because budgets don't work that way and right. positions don't work that way. Um, but they gave me permission to try. And then I did that. I've done that. Uh, and Terra is almost 11 years old now. It's over 10 years old. It's a going concern. It's situational awareness for all the wildland fire in the United States and a bunch of departments, analytics, pre-plans. It's an amazing company. It's been an amazing ride. But nothing in my mind ever changed, you know, from the very first day that Chief told me, just make it better with right. the resources that you have here. And don't be afraid to try. And so when Intera is healthy and growing and big, you know, in a small company, you do everything and then you find somebody smarter than you are and you fire yourself and you do that over (laughs) and over and over. And you have people that are much better trying to apply those same kind of lessons, like, you know, go do and make it better. And then at some point I just thought, well, there are issues that I am still interested in, in the fire service that are, um, not things that a vendor focused on a product in the market is going to automatically address. You know, you don't have millions of dollars of, of just R&D budget and playtime. You know, you have to be focused and disciplined with your team. And, um, 
And there were people at the company that were much, much better at running the everyday than I ever would be. You know, they're just terrific executors. Mm -hmm. And so they gave me permission to say, like, look for opportunity in the fire service. So we just made up a name we call an executive on loan to um, the Western fire chiefs. And I like the Western fire chiefs because um, it, unlike sort of the name and the trade association reply, they're marvelously innovative and in their thinking, and it's very refreshing. They're very entrepreneurial. So it gave me a place where I wasn't a government person and I wasn't a company man, a vendor per se. And so it gives you a little bit more neutrality and that same kind of permission to find problems, solve problems make it better. And then you realize, wait, I mean, like I get to move freely across so many different groups and meet the smartest people. And you feel like just sometimes just connecting those people can make it better for the fire service. So same passion, just uh, a lot more gray hair later. (laughs) The opportunities that we have, I mean, where we're at today, and we're going to talk a little bit about those. Let's, before we get into that, let's shift gears and and share a little bit about uh, some of the projects that you're working on and you shared a great list with me ahead of the podcast. Uh, last um, month on the podcast, we had Kate Capello from NIST who had done a great, a lot of great work in modeling and simulation. Uh, you're doing a little bit of, of, of applied modeling in the wildfire domain. Uh, let's talk about what projects you have that are working on wildfire modeling um, and how that's being applied in the fire service today. Yeah, sort of from big to little, I would say uh, modeling has been underutilized in the fire service in many ways, in risk, in tactical uh, decision-making in cities, and certainly within wildland. There's been models, but more or less they're derivatives of a model that was a fire behavior model that was created in 1982, and we make them faster and fancier, but it's not different. And so... um, that has been a passion. You know, if you're doing situational awareness and you're able to um, give, you know, with the best situational awareness in the world, you're showing what's going to happen right now in real time with AVL and, and with fire perimeters and with the aircraft and infrared things. Um, but what if you could take uh, what you knew and move it to computing resources that were so fast that they could look at fuel and topography and weather and, and the things that were happening and iterate millions of times and give you sort of best guidance back on, and in our case, uh, um, what's going to happen in the next six, six and a half hours in sort of 15 minute increments. And so certainly uh, Intera isn't uh, like a modeling company that was doing that, but from the Western uh, fire chiefs and, and the industry side, what we've encouraged uh, even in, in Intera has done a lot to encourage this is there are modelers in the world, um, like you mentioned, that are great at this, but Often what they lack is the data input that gives better fidelity or training to their models. And certainly they lack um, the access to do dissemination in real time to test or to operate. And so that's what we've tried to provide. So we've partnered with uh, uh, UC San Diego. They have a supercomputing node there uh, and people call it Wi-Fi. It causes confusion because they think that that is a wildfire modeling bunch, but in reality, it's a supercomputing bunch, and they just have resources to make things go fast, and fire is just one of those things, so they run several models on there, so we were good at taking that uh, perimeter data and the best intel that we had, where had we black-lined things, where, you know, what was the weather going to do, sometimes overhead resources from aircraft that were uh, monitoring or even uh, uh, spaceborne uh, uh, inputs. So we could give all of that to this model. It can grind really quickly and give firefighters on the ground uh, real guidance. And so that program is several years old now. We piloted it last year. It's in production for uh, the whole state this year. They have vendors that fly, call when needed kind of aircraft with great sensors. They pass that off to wildfire modeling groups. And there are others too. Cal Fire runs one with a great company called TechnoSilva, and they do it more for like resource uh, management. So instead of just giving tactical guidance, they'll grind all the fires all night and say, these are going to get bigger. These are going to maintain and sort of give decision makers and resource chess piece movers the ability to say, let's uh, get the best bang for our buck, for our dollar, for our operations, for public safety, like the woolies that are threatened, et cetera. So that's a different 
application altogether. Uh, National Center for Atmospheric Research is a group we've worked with too. So instead of taking sort of big climate things and making old models go faster, um, they have an interesting approach um, that takes like meteorology uh, in very microclimates. So you think of like a plane landing and it's susceptible to wind shear and they'll get uh, alerted and alarms and they'll power up and power out of it. That kind of microclimate applied to fire behavior is what groups like that. And so we try to uh, put the peanut butter and the jelly together and say, your modelers, your super compute resources and your disseminators. And so let's put all of those things together and, and, and ensure a, a smooth flow of information out to real decision makers on the ground so they can just see where's this fire going. So that is more than just baby technology that's right. deploying. And I think uh, from a policy sort of standpoint or a big picture, we want to see that develop into um, like spaghetti models that you'd see on hurricanes. You know, when you see hurricane tracks, you see five or six models, and they say the U.S. model and the European model, and they all give slightly different courses for that hurricane. We think the same thing with modeling. We'd like to see those models almost compete yeah. and create, uh, you know, us a Petri dish to say, well, this one works better in the Midwest, or this one works better in, in this climate or under these wind conditions, and, and get a feel for who gives the best guidance and make it uh, uh, sort of an open platform that they can all plug in so we can see and wait for some of those models to align so we have more confidence of the, about what that fire is going to do. So lots of things on the horizon for that too, but uh, I think the biggest shift is that it's uh, – Nobody should come into the industry and say, I've solved modeling, you know, right. because it's <laughs> right. here and it's been here. You should say, I'm interested in modeling and how do I plug in so that I can be used and how we can see how that, uh, that works. And that can be hard for academia too. You can put a lot of eggs in that basket only to find out like you're not the first one to Easter. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Good example. You know, one of the great things that, that David and I it, have, that we enjoy and why we're able to have some great conversations about trying to find the intersection between optimizing the decision environment and utilization of technology, you know, is we just have this passion for how do we get the right information at the right time in front of incident commanders where today, you know, we're largely left with these, uh, windows of uncertainty in our incident command environment. And we're talking about, you know, fairly large uh, disasters, wildfires, but really all the way down to your, your routine, if you will, uh, house fire, same, same scenario, incident commanders or battalion chiefs are, are going to the incident with uh, some information that's been shared from the PSAP uh, uh, verbally through the notes, through comments in the, in the CAD system, and they're painting this picture. I mean, we're kind of going through the painting a, a mental visual. And and I'm scratching my head in, in 2021 saying, why are we still having to paint a picture with words? I mean, we have all of the, the necessary uh, data available. We have uh, Google Earth, uh, you know, photos, for example. We have uh, County records have photos of these different buildings. There's, we know how big they are. We know when they were built, you know, uh, our building officials know where the walls, you know, are inside a building and, and we're not grabbing enough. So I, I'm, I'm kind of agreeing with you that from a modeling perspective, it's completely underutilized in this industry. We've sort of accepted for a long time and continue to, to some extent that uh, we'll just figure it out when we get there. And my goal, you know, in is to uh, eliminate those degrees of uncertainty in, in decision making. We, you know, we look at, we look at risk and we look at uncertainty and, and risk in the, is typically defined as something we can assign a probability to uh, uncertainty is we don't, we don't know. I mean, there's just no probability of what's going to happen. When we look at our wildfire environment in particular in the WUI, we can assess what the probability of ignition is should a fire occur, you know, in a location X or location Y. The uncertainty in that scenario is we don't know where the fire is going to start. Some of the work you were just describing that you're doing is is 
the modeling of the risk because you you have the data inputs and the uncertainty isn't isn't there anymore. You know where the fire's at. Uh, now you need to calculate what the risk is in terms of where it's going using all the variables and factors that you you just demonstrated in supercomputing. So we're we're on the right path. It's you know where do we end up landing the plane in taking what information we know is available, getting it in front of our uh, we're painting we're we're now quite literally putting a picture. We're taking away the elements of uncertainty that and filling it with certainty for our incident commanders. We're just we're going to have a better decision making environment. Where do you think we need to be? You know, what's what's next in that gap? You know, from your perspective. So we've got we've got some great large scale work that you're talking about. Is how do you feel like it's being implemented at the ground? Uh, you know, say last year during the fire season. Uh, it's incrementally better um, every year, and uh, there are fits and starts to that. Uh, on the, if we're sort of making the pros and cons or a balance sheet of things, on balance, um, governments between the federal entities that are involved with wildfire, state entities, and local entities where it all starts, um, are much better at collaborating and working together. Um, it's always been collegial, you know, more or less on, on the ground working together. But in terms of this topic, information technology and bringing that to bear for situational awareness, when it counts and where it counts for the person that has to make the decision, it's been incremental. So it's good. And I can see plodding along for the next 10 years until it gets very good. But I think there's fits and starts. So if we start to see modeling as an example of a real breakthrough, like you said, now we have this pool of ingredients and we actually go bang when it matters. Here's the information that you didn't have. Here's where your fire is and here's where it's going. And then we can do a ton with what does that mean? You know, because now you literally have a clock and you say, if I can see that it will probably get there in 52 minutes ish, then I know how many people live there. I know how to get them in and out. I can see that plainly. And then I can look and understand like, well, wait a second, like it's going to take me two hours to evacuate all those people, you know, or those kinds. Right. So that's an example of how it's getting better. But I think uh, in practical terms that that will continue, like governments are working pretty well. The uh, data providers, which are the same people are sharing more. I think that's a human lesson that we've learned along the way is the same lesson as I, I guess I described in Colorado Springs way back when is if we ask the wrong people, if they want to share the data, they basically say, no, we don't want to share the data. And they invent all kinds of reasons why they don't. Mm -hmm. And they sound good, but they're not good. Um, but if I ask operations person on the ground, what data would he or she want at that moment? They're very specific and definitive. And always that list matches now data that we do have. And so there's a couple of approaches that from a policy kind of standpoint, all data has to be open, at least to an extent. Like uh, there's security, we could talk for hours, but for the sake of argument, you have to be able to um, have permission to deliver that data and share that data. You have to have an operational willingness to share across lines. And I think that we have that, but we just learned we have to ask operators first and then tell the nerds what to do, you know, and, and, and that kind of thing. So that's a helpful thing um, from a technology and specific kind of um, input. I think we're entering very exciting times in 21 for, you know, I could think of at least two examples we have a proliferation of internet devices, sensors out there that give us constant feedback. So that can be cameras, that can be smoke, that can be radiological. There's just a jillion sensors. That's, you know, you, that's everything. That's the ting sensor that monitors the electrical load in your house that we can mesh together from thousands and thousands of houses and identify a fault in a transmission system before it creates fire on the ground. We can bring all of that to bear right now. So IOT proliferation is going to be an absolute game changer. And then I thought you brought up an interesting point when you're talking about the person that needs to make that decision and we're sort of doing it in old fashioned ways or, or that, that, that information isn't making it the last mile. I think that's one of the most uh, interesting spaces, you know, if we're calling trends 
Um, and I think we could give a name to it. I think uh, you'd call it augmented reality. You know, if I have any kind of device or I have heads up kind of devices, but I like to think about it in terms of things I carry. I'm going to be having PPE on. I'm going to have, um, you know, uh, um, goggles and lenses of some sort, whether I'm masked up for a structure fire or, or different things for wildland fire. But I'm also going to have my phone with me always. You know, even if I'm doing those kinds of things. So if we have that information and I could just hold up my phone and it could show me the picture through my camera lens of what I'm looking at and then start lacing in information that is understanding me. Who am, who am I? What role am I having? What do I need to know at that moment? And folding geography into that, too. You know, I might be a battalion chief, but I might be off or I might be from my house, or I might be at headquarters. But if I'm a battalion chief and I'm within proximity of an approaching fire front, my information and risk data that it flows into that picture would be entirely different. And that's not hard to do. And we see examples of this. We just haven't mentally made the jump like, well, if we have a public safety dedicated network, we can argue all we want to about who's better, this guy or that better. But we have priority and preemption with FirstNet and AT&T, and at the very less, least, that's disruptive. That encourages other telecoms to uh, get with the program. So pick who you want. You know, there's probably people that I would prefer or you would prefer, but that's beside the point. We're innovating by disrupting. And if I'm delivering information with priority and preemption, if I'm using, um, well, yesterday there was an amazing announcement uh, from FirstNet while we're on that topic about being able to be using high power devices and powering my phone or my broadcast or my antenna up from like a quarter watt to a watt and a quarter. So that sounds ethereal and engineering, but what it means to me is when I'm talking to you or I'm sending data or you're sending me video, that doesn't get interrupted and that doesn't drop. It reaches way past the closest cell tower and connects me to the fastest. Uh, cell tower. It means that when I'm in uh, an engine and I get onto the rig to deploy and I'm on Wi-Fi, I don't have a gap, you know, for three minutes until I connect to cell coverage, you know, where I have a gap in my situational awareness. And oh, by the way, three minutes is all it takes for me to get there. You know, it means immediately I have this uninterrupted constant flow. So there's, there's things like augmented reality that will come. They're looking for a way to manifest. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, the best way for them to do that is not to have everybody walking around in Oculus Rift, you know, eye goggles, right. you know, right. and, and being dizzy all the time. But it's like, hey, I have my phone. I have a lens. I have a windshield in front of me already. It's like we can project things on there. And those things out of respect what call I'm attached to and what I'm doing on that call and just feed me like watch outs. If I'm doing a structure fire, it needs to tell me what, how to get there, water supply, um, and sort of, uh, things by exception, like everything's going to be bread and butter, except, Hey, you know, there's this kind of hazmat and there's this kind of life safety issue, you know, or a history of calls and violations with an index that says you've been here 13 times for, drug lab related things. So is maybe you want to know that, right. you know, it's something like that that helped an officer in the, in the right seat go, Oh, okay. And not distract that person, but keep their eyes on that, that scene and just uh, give them enough information to prompt them to say, let's just put that in the hopper and say, that could be a factor for me today. Right. It, yeah. And it's absolutely significant. You've got, you know, we all, we only have so much cognitive load that we can all manage in any, any given time. So I think we have to realize the, and accept the limitations of the human brain. And, you know, we may all think we're really good and, and, but a lot of times we, uh, we don't always take into account luck for one. I mean, luck always plays a role in it, but we also just, uh, don't know what we didn't know, you know? And so like everything you're talking about is achieving that goal that, that I dream of is creating that optimal incident command environment where we're able to fill in uh, uncertainty with certainty. And I like the way you said it, relevant certainty at the time that it becomes important for a decision that needs to be made. Yeah. I have a question for you on that. You know, uh, one of the lessons I learned early, which it took me a minute to understand, uh, 
We're fighting um, about three or four alarm fire in Colorado Springs, hazmat involved. So I was uh, showing, you know, the normal thing. Here's the situation. Here's how we're deployed around it. Here's what would happen if we have a hazmat problem with a plume. You know, just sort of normal things that at that point felt super cool and fun, but also just like normal, you know, like, okay, it's Thursday. So we're doing that kind of stuff. When we finished up, before we left, uh, a wise captain that I respected so much that taught me as much as anybody else said, hey, you know, I think you're standing too close to the IC. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I don't know what you mean. Like your my job is to give them a picture and and show them and he's like no no and i don't even he said i don't even mean like physical proximity it's just that what you're doing has become sophisticated enough that you're giving them a very definitive picture of like what's going to happen with that fire where people are which is good and then uh, when we're talking about the plume you're saying like here's the plume and so they under pressure tend to look down and see a very definitive picture and say, that's what it is. And he said, I watch them sometimes abandon their experience for your model. Mm -hmm. And I, he said, are you an expert modeler? And I said, I'm an experienced modeler, but I'm not an expert. Like I'm not a hazmateer, you know, right. like I've taken a, a bunch of classes, maybe more than some of them, but I'm, I'm a computer nerd. I'm not a 30 year veteran hazmat person who understands how that's going to interact in this environment. And he's like, right, but you're showing them a boundary of where the, it's safe and where it's not safe or where it could be. And he said, so just think about, and this is my question to you, is I'm very good uh, at working with people to flood that modern or next uh, incident command environment with information and probably good enough to say, this is relevant. This is you. This is what's happening. Here's your model. But at some point, like there's this human question, like, am I too definitive? Like, or how do I show risk or variability within that? Or how do I make it so that if my tech fails, if the screen runs out of batteries, if you know, whatever that that person still doesn't depend on it. Right. Well, I think the answer to your question is we have to recognize that, you know, no model for one is perfect. Uh, all models are to one degree or another going to be wrong at some piece. The question we ask ourselves is, are, are the models useful and does it help uh, add value to the, dis to the dialogue? Because, you know, for us to admit that the model ha may have uh, that there's some element of it's wrong or, or that there is a, a flaw in it. I mean, we equally have to re recognize that the human decision-making has its, its flaws. Uh, so we wouldn't be able to say, well, without the model, I, I could say with certainty, you may say with a high degree of confidence, but certainly you can't acknowledge that what that say that in experienced instant command commanders uh, guidance or direction is under a degree of uh, a high degree of certainty. Uh, it's there's confidence with that. And I would I would argue the same then for the model, you know, from your experience, you're saying I have, you know, a high degree of confidence uh, and we should name what our degree, of, I am 90% sure, you know, the model is going to provide, you know, accurate detail, uh, much like modeling in the weather, you know, we say it's 80% chance of rain. Our, our first thing I say when I go outside is the weather person was wrong. Forecaster was wrong and they're not wrong. Yeah. They said, they, they said there was a 20% chance it wasn't going to rain, you know? And so the 20% is what occurred at this stage. So I, I think if I, if I'm understanding the question right is, you know, we wouldn't want to abandon any one one way for another. You know, we want to make sure that we would compile all the information. I, I don't think a computer is ever going to be the one that strictly makes a command level decision. But what we do know is that the, the modeling in the computer uh, will add value uh, to the degree of confidence that we have when it's coupled with the rest of the environment that we're making decisions in. I don't know if that got to what, what you were asking to me. I it, see the, go ahead. It, it absolutely does. You know, and I just think uh, that's um, the, how we'll have to think about it because you and I uh, like to think about uh, the whole picture on that kind of thing. And so the technology is, is a piece of it and it's a help. And there's sort of two things that come along in the fire service. We tend to say, if it's not perfect, like if it's not definitive, 
then we won't use it. But you don't really ever do anything with definitive stuff. You give them training so that their experience can guide them. So we don't, we want to avoid, first of all, the temptation to say like, you know, you have to understand what you said is that this is a job aid. This helps us with our decision make, making it comes alongside and it can take a lot of the emotion uh, and the stretch and the stress of not having enough information and fill that blank. So I can calmly and more dispassionately make a decision. And the other thing that uh, on the other end of that, I, uh, maybe a, a good example is I, I was a small part of a team in Colorado Springs that built this marvelous AVL uh, system. And, um, you know, we had 900 megahertz uh, network that we built. We built our own computers, uh, geospatial stuff, all, all tied into CAD, all, all tied into directions. We even tied it into signal timing, you know, so it would just not work like an Opticon system, but know when engine six was going to get to a particular intersection, it would be green. The cars would be cleared out. The other three directions would be held. And it was marvelous. And, it, it was just like, I've almost never been more proud to be a part of a team that did something. It was a work of art created from scratch and it worked really, really well. Um, and two things happened that were really interesting for me riding in engines after that, uh, within about a year, I realized nobody knows how to get anywhere anymore. And so I realized I'm the part of the group that created this, but I feel a real old school reaction. Like, if anybody, and they did, and if anybody ever asked me, I would say I would never let a driver turn a wheel in a fire truck at Colorado Springs Fire if they couldn't write down every street and 100 block on the four map pages that touched their district so they could know, go right or left out of the out of the chute and get going and all that. You know, and so I felt like, wait a second, they're over depending on the picture. You know, and the other thing that I noticed was just in terms of human behavior, like one, it's just a funny story. We were testing it and we told, you know, the crew of this engine company, we're putting a box under your seat. We don't even have a heads up display and, but it's, it's, it's tracking you and we will watch you on the map. We'll uh, safeguard, you know, that like, I'm not going to you just do what you do, but just know you're getting tracked and we're building this system. We're trying the signals. They should work better, but still be careful through intersections. We think it'll work all that kind of stuff. So first day, probably three hours into their shift, we're just huddled around, you know, the monitor watching this whole thing. And a deputy chief walks up behind us and says, what are you guys doing? And we said, Oh, chief, check this out. This is super cool. And he looks at it and I'm like, Hey, look. And like, if I click on them, I can see like the engine's okay. The voltage is okay. You know, here's how fast they're going, all that kind of thing. And as God is my witness, he reached on his belt and goes, engine one, slow down. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, and by the afternoon, my AVL unit was broken, right. you know, mysteriously <laughs> broken, you know, and they're not sending information anymore. And so I just, there's just such a human part of it where we have to be like, don't over depend on it, but how do you teach them to use it as a tool? How do you use it? You know, their, their powers for good and not evil, that kind of stuff. Right. There's so yeah. many lessons wrapped up in that. <laughs> there is. Yeah. And that's a, a good example of, uh, of, of how, you know, we've got, we can't lose sight of how the, you know, technology is being implemented, you know, how, how is it being accepted and how is it being implemented? Uh, the key, you know, as we talked on the, at the front end of our discussion is, uh, how do we make it better? You know, how, how do we, how are we constantly evolving to make sure that the situation is, is better and that we're able to calibrate our confidence appropriately, uh, utilizing the tools that are available to us. One of the neat things that you get to do, which I think is super cool, is you get to take that that energy that the Western Fire Chiefs have in in envisioning where we and in, in your contribution to visioning where the industry needs to be. Uh, that is one of the great things that makes the Western Chiefs so amazing is their willingness to to get out and innovate in these areas and say we we're not just going to accept status quo. We need to be somewhere else uh, and we need to be there fast. And then you get to press the, the vendors into keeping up with us. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, 
who's on, right? You get to reach out, say who wants to be part of this and, and how are you going to make this work for the, the community? And anyway, I think that's neat. You want to share a little bit about what that's like? Yeah, it's a, it's the best job you could ever have. Yeah. You described it really well because we can see the need. We can understand from experience, you know, some of the barriers in that. And when you have an entrepreneurial or innovative group saying like, we have to get in front of this, like this is a problem. Let's quit having the same conversations, you know, uh, about evacuation or, or damage assessment or, or incident command and technology or analytics that we have had every single year, you know, let's, what's the problem, you know, let's identify it, pray and attack, you know, like, and so I, I get to be sort of on the attack button and they say like, you know, I work with people that are much smarter than I am. And they say, these are the burning and pressing issues. And so for me, it's nice to be able to go to, like little tiny companies that are really innovating um, that don't, wouldn't normally have a big voice and say, you look like the best athlete that we could put into this race. Let's try it. Mm-hmm. Or conversely going to some of the world's biggest technology companies and saying, um, Hey, you have some technology. Have you ever thought about working with us to apply it this way? And we've had a lot of success with that. Uh, in fact, um, that's probably the last time I saw you is when we got yeah. to come through town uh, in Southern Oregon on the Alameda fire and work with uh, Medford and Jackson County three and the other chiefs in the area and say, here's some technology. Let's collect a ton of data, uh, go through here uh, and do rapid damage assessment with 360 degree cameras going quickly and then taking that data and moving it into, I mean, image captures, not the novel trick anymore. We can do that from the air. We can do that from the ground. But to be able to take that data rapidly, upload uh, terabytes of data, and then put it into machine learning where it can say like damage destroyed, you know, and and go through and rapidly assess or even do like volumetric debris calculations so we can baseline our costs. That sounds boring, but if I know how much a dump truck full of debris is supposed to cost getting out of here, it helps my contract people at the EPA and everything know you know, this is, this is where we need to be. We're not overpaying for this kind of recovery in all the billions of dollars. So uh, we always appreciate working with innovative chiefs that are on the ground to test stuff like that. And for me to be able to be on the ground, test cutting edge technology, um, throw some of it away because it's not going to work or identify the problems with it and find, um, you know, PhDs or somebody to work on that problem. Um, those, that is the most rewarding kind of thing in public safety because you feel like you're really getting to contribute to a solution and do it on a time frame that's not indefinite. It's not research for 10 years. It's right. very like, let's do this kind of thing now. And the other thing that I think um, we've learned along the way is that if you do something like that, we don't intend it to be disruptive. We're trying to solve a problem. But often, just like the IT argument that I used before, if we just sort of ask for permission in traditional ways, you get sort of the same answers and you get stasis. You're not really moving anything forward, but by doing and showing, um, I don't have to own the result of that. I just want somebody to be successful doing that. I think it creates opportunity in industry to drive costs down, to have innovation, to have competition in these kinds of areas, just things that, uh, that are very good for fostering, you know, things, the same goals we care about. We want to protect lives and property. We want to innovate to do that. And this is how you do it. So it gets people's attention and all of a sudden they're sort of competing for a solution or trying to get involved in that kind of solution. And it gives uh, the fire service and public safety as a whole, this front row seat to say like, Whoa, like I didn't know we were doing that, you know, like that's good. And inevitably you have this creativity that comes out of the firehouse or out of law enforcement or EMS that says, we've been thinking about that and we know how to do this part. And so it it creates a lightning rod for a bigger conversation instead of sort of trying to push a rock uphill and start one without doing anything. Yeah, no, that's very well said. I think that's probably a great spot for us to wrap up the discussion. 
David, I really appreciate having you on the show. Before I let you go, one of the things that here at Assuming Command we like to ask our guests just to understand a little bit more about you is what is your your passion project? Although we spent near you know quite a bit of time hearing about a passion uh, of you, but for for David Blankenship, what's your passion project? A thing that kind of puts a smile on your face when you get a chance to do it, personal or professional? Yeah, well, I I would say two things. For me, working on technology that is uh, new, that people said wouldn't happen or couldn't happen or it wasn't ready. You know, we all spend careers and we've had been in enough meetings and things like that where people that you like tell you all the reasons something won't work. And so for me, the personal passion is keeping a promise that I gave my chief the first week that I was at CSFD. And that was, you know, if I give you freedom to do this, will you make it better? I trust that you will. And so for me, it's never been more complicated than that. It's uh, now maybe, you know, we work on a national or international stage, but it is fundamentally precisely the same thing as let's make it better then we found it and let's, let's innovate. And for me, you know, I, I, I am this person with this skill in this place. I'm, I'm not another person with another school in another place. So I have to do my best with this. And, and so that, that my passion is I want to make evacuation better. I want to make damage assessment better. I want to solve indoor tracking and I want to present information and community risk uh, into the fire service. You can call it what you want, but I want what we were talking about. I want an IC on their way to an incident to know what they need to know and have a different outcome. And I want that to be a baseline fundamental capability for public safety, not something that, you know, big rich departments do or certain people do because they have a great chief that needs to be fundamental you know, just like anything else that we do that sustains. Cause that's, what's great about the fire service is it's tradition. And we tease about that, mm-hmm. but also when you lock something right in, you're on the side of good and you're right. And it stays for years and decades. And that makes a difference in our community. So that's my passion. And then uh, my other passion, I think is I do not think I've caught the best trout on fly fishing <laughs> that I could catch. I need yeah. to work harder on that. Yep. Keep, keep at it. David, we are so grateful to have you yeah, on the show. Yeah, I'm going to keep dogging it. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your, your expertise. And and just and that is just a, a couple of the many projects that you're working on on behalf of public safety and the fire service. We're grateful to have you working with the Western. David Blankenship, working on technology and strategy for public safety. Thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. You bet. You have been listening to Assuming Command with Bob Horton. This podcast is brought to you by Upstream ABI, your advisor on applying behavioral insights to improve your organization's impact. Visit us at www.upstreamabi.com for more details on how we can help you.